Okay, welcome back to the Tim Weichselbaum Show. This is episode 64. This is a special episode because I just happened to just... I was at a party and I saw a comedian there that I am a particularly big fan of. Actually, that's the first thing I said to him when I met him. I was like, hey, I'm a big fan. And it immediately created this power dynamic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is still the you can no you can you're welcome to join. I'm just still introducing my guest. I'm very happy to have him. He is a veteran comedian of the world of the country. Not just he's also the best LGBT community in the world. <laughs> you pay attention. Yeah, that is actually what it is. Yeah, thank you. And his name is Ty Rivera. And I, he, he fucking said yes to being on this. I, saw, I was at a party, Super Bowl party. That's what we're doing. This. You could tell we were at a Super Bowl party because we're completely sober. I don't know if you partake in the in anything like that that would inebriate you. No, well, I take breaks from everything. and so, But I don't do anything hardcore. But, you know. Nothing hardcore. I know what that means. Things that are from the earth, I will do occasionally, but I also take long breaks. So it'll be like, you know, five months, six months sometimes. I think this one's going to be like a 40-day. It'll have been 40 days when I decide. If I decide. I don't know if I want to go back to doing anything or not because I feel like when I'm completely sober, I really am at my best. Okay, so 40 days from alcohol or just what you said when you said like nothing hard well, I mean, what does like, that mean? So, I, I occasionally will smoke weed. Like alcohol, I really don't mess with anymore. It just okay. doesn't make me feel good. So, forty days from what are you talking about? Just weed. Just weed. Yeah, because okay. anything else, I don't do. Like I don't do coke, or you know, I mean, like I don't know if you get demonetized for that, or if you even worry about that. I think or, the word coke is fine. Yeah, I don't do anything like that. Um, I'm not that guy. I'm also uh, taking a break from weed. I'm fifty days, so we're. We're on a similar wavelength with that, and I, I think I'm taking a very long break from weed because I found out that it just I was using it as a uh, way to get uh, dopamine. I use it for executive function. I don't know if you're familiar with that technical term in the ADHD community. No. Okay. Yeah, so I am also taking a break from weed, but also I'll, I, I want to almost use the word quit because – now that I know what I was using it for, I could get that dopamine from other substances, but also just from natural ways of getting it, which is something I'm seriously working on doing and accomplishing as a uh, individual. Like I'm no longer like I'm actually trying to lift the weights because anytime we use a drug, there's a reason we're using it. Cocaine, that one I don't do. I've, I've never really done it. Um, but I, it would deliver, that's, it delivers dopamine and that's why people move around. That's why they fucking talk and, and like externalize their ideas and like, yeah, I'm going to go up to this. They just do whatever the fuck they want. I don't know. Dopamine causes you to move around. It, It causes your brain to tell your muscles to move. Are you an Adderall guy or any of that kind of stuff? I'm an Adderall man. That's my, one of my new medicines that I am using to treat ADHD. And that's one of the topics that I often bring up on this is, uh, is ADHD. I just found out about it that I, I, I've always known that I had it as a kid, but then I stopped t- treating it because I thought it wasn't for grown-ups. I thought it was just a kid's disease, and I learned that it actually affects a lot of my life, like many fucking things that I thought was like autism. Yeah. It's, it was just ADHD, and social anxiety is one of the things like social uh, dis- rejects, rejection sensitivity is a symptom. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was a huge like thing to figure. It's like, oh, that's why I'm so sensitive. It's not like uh, autism. It's similar. Who cares? But it's it, it's good to know though that that's what it was. So yeah, Adderall um, really helps with uh, m- being able to function, not just get shit done around the house, but also just like uh, socialize. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's a tricky thing figuring out your chemistry. And everybody that I know that um, has to be prescribed anything or, you know, 
has to have any kind of, I don't know, like psychotropics has to figure out what it is that figures out that perfect recipe for them. And some people it seems to be like pretty quick for, like relatively speaking, because, you know, everybody's got to, like everybody that I've known that has ever had to be on any kind of like cocktail for lack of a better term, you know, has a trial and error error period. And then like, you know, also I notice a lot of people will be really good on a certain, you know, certain levels of things for a little while and then, or even for a longer while. And then at a point it just needs to be adjusted again. So it's like, you know, those, those kinds of things are tricky with me. I try to do everything as naturally as possible. And, and mainly because I always notice that the more I get to just 100% me, the better off I am, which isn't to say that I like, I don't feel any way about what anybody else does. You know, like, I think everybody has to figure out what their right prescription mm -hmm. is. Okay, yeah, and that's the word cocktail. Yeah, I kind of do have a little bit of a cocktail. My other thing that I use for, I guess, med it's not medicine, it's self-prescribed, so you can't really, I don't really consider it, but mushrooms. I take mushrooms, psilocybin, very often to the point where it's probably, it's probably going to have a, like a tipping point where it's like, well, this is crazy that I'm doing this this often. Because I take enough to actually feel like I'm on it. Not to trip. I don't like to trip, but I like to feel the effects. And part so of a it, little more than microdosing. A little more than microdosing. Yeah. Okay, but it's similar because it still leads to the same end result. It just has a little more of a few hours where I. It takes me a while to think of words because <laughs> like, your brain is processing shit differently. And you. Uh... Do you leave the house like that usually, or do you have to stay in? I love leaving the house. Yeah. When I right before dosing, and I I take a very small amount, so I know when it's too much to be unsafe. But but yeah, I get to wherever I need to get, and sometimes it is too much to drive, so I have to stay there sometimes and just wait it out. Yeah. But it puts me. It, it's it. The other side of it is serotonin. That's what it does. Is uh, dopamine I get from Adderall serotonin i gotta figure out something for that because we you know uh, i'm not doing that so i'm replacing i'm kind of using mushrooms to get me through the weed withdrawals and it, it it makes me feel uh sympathetic or empathetic it gives me empathy for me and for other people but more importantly for myself because i'm a very self-hating kind of guy yeah very low self-esteem when I'm just on uh, nothing. Yeah. So so that's my cocktail. Nice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's that was a good thing. That was a good first topic. I don't know. Unless you have something more you want to. So what else have you done? What is one of your drugs that you don't fuck with anymore that you use? <laughs> I don't know. No, when I was younger, I used to party. And, you know, in the gay community, um speed is a huge thing it's kind of what i'm not that's what i'm that's what adderall is yeah i know but, but the you know, street version is yeah different. usually yeah, it would be different. like tweak meth that meth, kind of stuff right. so when i was younger i used to mess with that a little bit uh more than a little bit but i was never one of those people that spent a lot of money on it which again i'm not trying to make it seem like that it makes me better than anybody else but just my friends were dealers so i had like an unlimited um that's great yeah, like, but that's also, like, it was a really good thing, like, a really good side effect of having friends that were dealers was that eventually that's why I stopped doing it, was because I got to see exactly how high you could get. So, you know, where other people have that, like, chasing the dragon type thing, there was a point where I feel like I caught the dragon, you know? <laughs> I was like, this is as high as I will ever be able to get. Okay, that's interesting. And so, yeah. you know, when you're up for several days... And you can't, Oops. that's fine where it is, uh, and you can't uh, inhale anymore, then you kind of... Oh, okay, yeah. You smoke it, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm interested in because it's like the better version of what I'm taking. So I do fantasize, not about the street kind, but there's a medical version of meth, you know, and it is prescribed for, for ADHD. So I actually would definitely try that if, if i had 
availability to that but uh, that's a little different from smoking it you know you know if you're smoking it it becomes a habit probably very easily what was that like how was it like give me a review of you already kind of did yeah well what did you get shit done i've done it both ways because my best friend in arizona he was a dealer and he preferred snorting it and then my best friend in las vegas which is where I moved immediately after that. This was years ago, by the way. I I just moved from Las Vegas, but um, I've lived in Las Vegas twice. So for anybody that thinks that, you know, this was in the last four years or whatever, it definitely was not. It's been years since I've done this. And I just say that to be very clear because, like, I got over everything. But, like, do I... For me, it wasn't beneficial. Everything that's beneficial for other people seems to not be beneficial for me. That's why I say... Like for me, being 100% natural and the only thing that I add to like my body now would be like multivitamin and then I go to the gym all the time. And I've talked about that before on my podcast, Unbothered by Tara Vera, which um, I've talked about the fact that for me, the gym is the drug. That's where I get my endorphins. So I go to the gym. I work out like a crazy person. And it it's similar to meds in the way, like, a lot of times people will hear for depression. You know, like, if you want to feel better, get the endorphins going, go to the gym. And people will go to the gym one time, and they'll be like, oh, it didn't work for me. And it's like, well, it's just like meds. You know, like, if you're taking a new medication, a lot of times you want to allow two to three weeks for it to actually incorporate into your system and for your body to actually adjust to it and, you know, to see where you're at. And so it's similar with working out to me where it takes two to three weeks for you to really start feeling the difference. And I don't mean just physically because there are the effects that happen with that. You know, the better you look, the better you feel. That's one thing. But then just as far as your endorphins and stuff like that, for everything to really start doing the way that you want them to do, it'll take a couple of weeks. That's good advice. And if I get off my system, you know, of going to the gym... It's, again, like meds. You know, you can go for a while where you'll still feel great or still feel fine. But then after you go a bit too long, then you definitely start to notice again, like, oh, I'm starting to get depressed again. I'm starting to deal with some of the stuff that, you know, that it was helping. Well, that makes sense. And, yeah, I'm one of the people that you're talking about that just kind of tried it tries it once like i got a one of those upright bikes in the next room over and like i do it occasionally and then it's like okay it takes a lot of effort to get it started yeah Even just putting my shoes on to use the damn thing to get on the thing but yeah but then once i'm on i like to f- do at least 30 minutes you know and I, I like to push myself once i'm on it but it's the starting that's hard but of course that helps with you know dopamine it helps it actually has a synergistic effect with uh, the meds. It makes it more effective. So yeah, of course, that's one of the natural things that I am. Tr- I'm not doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then my little dog is very helpful for everything too. You know, like, um, and that's like sometimes you'll say stuff like that, and people will think you're just being silly. But if people were to look at actual research in the way that you react to your dog and your dog reacts to you as far as on a chemical level, they've done studies about that. And there is some benefit to, you know, the endorphins you get from like, you know, even making eye contact with your dog and petting it at the same time. And like, I didn't need a study to tell me that because I just know what I feel when I'm around my dog. And I know that the way that things change for me when I'm not around her and even the anxiety, which Again, people will judge you over that, you know, and think you're not being healthy or whatever. But it's like, what's unhealthy about loving a little dog, you know? I can't think of anything unhealthy about it. Why would they say it's unhealthy just because it's not? Well, because, you know, you maybe have a little bit of a, what could be described as a separation anxiety. But for it doesn't hinder what I have to do during the day. It's just like for me being a comic... I've been on the road quite a bit at different points and sometimes I used to leave her with friends and I would have anxiety when she would be away from me. And so maybe in that way somebody could say something like that. But as far as just like being away from her now, it's not like every once in a while, I'll be honest, when I'm out, like when we're at the party or something like that, 
Every once in a while, I'll have a quick moment where in my head, I'm like, I miss my puppy. But then, you know, I go back to just being normal again. It's not like this big problem. I mean, and the dog would have probably the same mutual separation anxiety, too. I mean, right? It's a mutual relationship, right? (laughs) If you ever meet my dog, you'll see... um, I think when I go on the road, yeah, but when I'm gone for short periods like this, I doubt she really thinks she about me. She's super independent. She's great. She's a oh, chihuahua, which most people expect oh. them to be like, you know, super needy. She's the opposite. She's great. Yeah, I heard there's like a misconception about them, about those dogs. Definitely. There's a lot of misconceptions about them. Like a lot of people think they just have to be yappy and shaky mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And a lot of times that's them mirroring mirroring their owners. And Mm -hmm. also what happens with chihuahuas a lot of times is because they're small dogs, people usually think they're good for people that live sedentary lifestyles. And chihuahuas need exercise too. So like a lot of times people will think, oh, I'm going to get this chihuahua. I never have to walk it. I live in an apartment. Well, the chihuahua has a shitload of energy. So if you're a person like me that likes to be, because me and my dog go to the dog park daily, or at least we'll go for a good walk daily, but usually we get to the dog park and so, and I'll really walk her and will expend a lot of that energy. So she's super chill and the people that meet her are usually like that. Yeah, that's not like any chihuahua I've ever been in contact with before. I feel like a dog would be good for me because it would solve the uh, the thing that we talked about earlier with like just getting endorphins, like oxytocin. And uh, also it, for, it would force me to go out of my shell and like, actually leave the house more, get more sunlight and have to go to the dog park. That would force me to improve just by being a fucking dog. Yeah, be honest about your personality and do research. Because a lot of people pick a dog on look, and that's the dumbest way to pick a dog. Like, a lot of people will be like, I think Siberian Huskies are beautiful. Yeah, They're very high maintenance. They'll tear up your whole house if you don't exercise them the way that they should yep. be exercised. They're going to try to run away for a long time. Like, I've had friends that have had Siberian Huskies for years, and they're like, yeah, it took me forever to get them to the point where... They didn't try to run away because that's their instinct. They're more on the wild yeah, side. Those are over. Yeah, those have people just buy them. And yeah, and especially in Texas, with the, they're not. They they need to be in a cold environment. Yeah, yeah. You got to do research. Yeah, I don't know what kind of dog I would get. What kind of dog would fit my personality or anything? Just the type, the right kind of dog to get. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's as simple though, honestly. As, like I said, just being honest about your personality and put that in Google, like what kind of dog is good for XYZ. And then you'll get a, yeah. like several suggestions from Google. And then usually it's hyperlinks. So if you like, and this is just an example, I don't know your personality well enough, but if you just click on like, say Rottweiler is one of the options, which Rottweilers are great dogs. I had one before. Um, but if you just click on Rottweiler, and then go ahead and read the page and see what the dog's personality is and what it was actually bred for. Then you can, in your head, just be like, okay, that works for me or that might not work for me. I was thinking Ryler, actually, or German Shepherd. But, yeah, I was thinking one of those because they're, like, very reliable and security and, like, all that shit. Mm-hmm. I'm a very security-minded person, and that's why this house is very has very few guests, you know? Like, yeah. This house is just like a fucking shell that i live in it's i'm very closed off from the world as in contrast to the place that we just came from which is a couple blocks away a huge party and uh everything was normal about that house there was decorations up at the you know there's a pantry with food in it yeah so i'm i have a you know i'm a you know, I'm not trying to be too judgmental towards myself at this you know at this juncture but but I learned a lot just from that those first few topics that we went through the dog thing, the gym. Yeah, I'm learning a lot. Drugs, which was a weird thing to open on, but uh yeah, you know, um like you talked about being judgmental with yourself and the the older I get, the less judgmental I get about not only myself but other people, which I think a lot of people work the opposite, you know, as they get older, they build up more walls and stuff like that. I think I'm now a better judge from the beginning of what will and won't work for me. But I also feel like I'm less judgmental in my approach to 
like how I handle those things and even the way that I look at them, you know, like, because a lot of times when people don't necessarily agree with somebody's way of living or their way of thinking, they think that that's like a bad thing, you know, you think different than me, so you're not a good person or whatever. With me, I think, okay, well, that's not for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad person. Or sometimes when somebody does something that kind of... If you were to really think about it, inadvertently kind of fucks you over, like somebody changes a plan or something like that, and you really had like your mindset on a particular thing, and then they change it, a lot of people think of that as like, oh, so-and-so fucked me over. And sometimes, well, now what I've noticed is that a lot of times in my personal experience, it wasn't that they were doing anything to make it so that something negative ha would happen to me. They were really doing it as what was best for them. And so then you hold less resentment and you're just sort of like, okay, well, they did that because that's what made more sense for them in that moment or that would benefit them more mm -hmm. than what they had planned with me. Right. Resentment is a big one. That's a thing that is hard to let go. I mean, I know you said as you get older, it's you, you kind of close things off. And uh, yeah, I kind of want to focus on maybe... How about comedy-wise? Do you have what's your biggest gripe? Also, you you also said something that it was interesting about. Just like some people have different opinions, doesn't mean you have to fucking shut them out. Yeah, if you're that is a huge thing that is a problem in this uh, country. Never mind comedy; it's a big problem in the country, but also in comedy and division. You know, like, oh, you. you you have this opinion? Okay. Yeah, I dealt with that a lot in Chicago. I was chastised. I was, uh, you know, I was open about my opinions, and I still am to this day. And that's another thing about any good comedian, I think, doesn't give a fuck about that. Yeah, well, because a lot of times what I've noticed is that the joke really is somewhere in between what you believe and the other side. Like, that's what I've noticed in a lot of cases. And so if you don't have a sense of humor about your side, then you really are just kind of finger pointing at the other side, Who, which who's really going to find that funny? Like, yeah, I guess if you're preaching to the choir, but I've never had that benefit in me doing stand-up. You know, because uh, when I first started out, uh, I was performing for everybody, but the world was, I started in 2003. And I'm openly gay, and I've been openly gay from the beginning. There was never a point in my career where I was at all closeted. There were points where, as an exercise, I would force myself not to talk about being gay when I first started, but it wasn't at all to mask it. It was so that I wouldn't rely on being gay as a crutch. I didn't want it to be my thing. I wanted to be funny and gay as well. So I wanted to be a comedian that happens to be gay rather than a gay comedian. So... Me realizing that when I first started out, you know, that this gay stuff just fucking kills it. You know what I mean? But like, at the same time, being like, okay, I don't want that to be all I am. And then also, it was beneficial to me that the world was so different at that time, which people wouldn't think it was that big of a difference, but it's been 19 years. And if you think about where gay was or LGBT in general, like even back then, we didn't have LGBTQ. Nobody was saying that. It was the gay community or it was the gay and lesbian community in a lot of cases. And then it evolved to where it is now. But back then, having to deal with that resistance of people not being the most open to it, like in the beginning, because like if in the beginning, now I can come out and say I'm gay right at the beginning of my set and have a great set. When I was first starting out, if I immediately said that I was gay, like first thing right off the bat, it was too much for them and they'd pull back in most cases. Like once in a while I'd end up, and I was living in LA, mind you. So people would think LA being as progressive as it was has always been the way that it is, but it really wasn't. And there was a gay part of LA, which would be West Hollywood. There was also Silver Lake and a couple other little pockets like that, but it wasn't like it is now. And so you'd go to certain areas, and especially when you went to the Inland Empire, which would be like Riverside, uh, San Bernardino, um, Corona, you know, and then you're in Orange County, which was notorious for being particularly conservative, which I never had a problem with, uh, with Orange County. Um, but like, you know, people think of Irvine, like places like that, which would be technically more conservative, but it was kind of, it was kind of, it was kind of good training as a comedian because that bit of resistance would give you it, it would force you to be more creative 
and it would force you to actually think about the other side. Because if you had just went hard on them, you could have banged your head against the wall all you wanted doing that. But you weren't going to change anybody's mind. Nobody was going to think you're funny. And you're not going to get what you actually want from them, is, which is obviously a positive response. So I had to learn to adjust to that. Then I started doing like true redneck clubs. And so I had to adjust to that. Then I started getting asked to do like gay clubs or gay shows. And so I had to make that adjustment. And people would think that that would be easy for me to do. But the problem with gay people is I would be so open with them because I was so relieved that I was in what should be an accepting environment and a safe space that I would make them uncomfortable because they felt like I was airing out dirty laundry because I was saying things that to me were just common knowledge or very easily relatable subjects and ways of coming at subjects to the gay community. Well, if they're going to book a gay show, don't they want to hear about the perspective of the performers? You would think that, but no, (laughs) especially gay people. Okay, then why make a theme of a show, people? Sell tickets. Right, obviously. That's all. Yeah. But it's not, it's not at all about what, because what you're thinking I mean, is logical thinking. Good comedy is not supposed to always be like palpable or palatable. Oh, yeah. It's supposed to be like, oh, shit. I mean, the best comedy. Really. But that's not, not the what they're trying to turn yeah, comedy into or what they've tried to turn it into. You started off in, t- yeah, that's crazy. You've been through, that's quite a c- early time to start as an openly gay comedian. I mean, you're so already one in a million. So to go through that with that uh, identity and then realize that you don't only want to be known as that, so you kind of, I don't know, if you just always go up there and just use that as your whole act. Yeah, that would feel stale and hack. And it is kind of to only go by that, I think. Yeah. So that's why you've developed. And that's why I instantly gravitated towards your com- your comedy. Um, but also, what was I going to say? Yeah, that's just... Oh, yeah, the thing about just, like, comedy, the best comedy, it's not hack. It's not just, like, I don't know, I'm white, and that's my baggage. That's my thing that I, I go on white-themed shows. Yeah. So I say, like, hey, we need, a, we need a racist white guy. I'm waiting for that to become a popular <laughs> theme for a show. That's why I'm a nobody. I'd be, I would, anyway, enough about me. I don't want to wedge my shit in here. But... White is the new gay. <laughs> I hate you so much. Just like gay was the new black. That was the the thing. Where everybody always wants to be the new somebody instead of just being themselves. Yeah. Well, sure. That's a good point. I mean, just being myself is probably the most bankable. I mean, yeah, Louis C.K. does not go up there as a redhead. So, you, yeah, of course, I agree with you. Yeah, it's hard and it's a lot of work and people don't understand that part of it. Like to really, and I don't feel like I've completely mastered it, obviously. And it might be the kind of thing that you just continue to work on and continue to get better on as the, get better at as the years go on. But I don't know if you ever mastered it. And I definitely don't feel like I've mastered it. That's why sometimes other comedians will take me the wrong way, like newer comedians what I'll refer to them as either being newer comedians or I'll talk to them like newer comedians or, or people will tell me these these numbers. Like I'll be like, you know, so you're newer and they'll be like, well, I've actually been doing this for five years. And I'm like, that's new, you know, because like I've been doing this for 19 years now and I still feel like I'm new. And especially when I'm talking to somebody that's been in it for 40 years or 30 years, you know, I feel like a baby again because it's like, okay, yeah, and if they're good at it, which most of the people I deal with are good, you know, like I, I deal with a lot of comics that have been in it for this many years for a reason. They're not open micers. They've been working comics, some of them since the Carson area era. So, you know, um, especially when I was in L.A. because a lot of times there, at one point, I became like, because my original home club was the, the Laugh Factory, and so that was like my original home club. And then at a point, Comedy Magic Club kind of adopted me, which if you're not familiar with Comedy Magic Club, that club is legendary and been there forever. And in that green Jay room... Jay Leno plays it every Sunday, right? Is yeah, yeah he did. And then there was the pandemic and they took forever to reopen. So he started doing Flappers as well, which is in Burbank. And now I think he started to do Comedy Magic, but I haven't checked the status of it or talked to anybody. I really am an out of sight, out of mind type person. So I can pick up 
right where I left off with people, but I usually won't keep up with them while I'm gone. You know, I mean, like if I see them or see them online, then mm-hmm. I'll say a quick hello, but I don't usually go out of my way to just stay in touch with people. But anyway, um, when you're in mm-hmm. that green room, uh, you know, and when I left LA, it was 2017, 2000, yeah, I think it was 2017. And so 2015, 2016. So at that point, I had been in for like 12 years, you know, um, my math is right on that. No, 15 years. More or less. Yeah. I'm not going to math either. Yeah. Who cares? And then you went to uh, where? If you're at home and you're smart, Vegas, you did uh, the math already. Yeah. Um, but like, what's it called? Um, so when you're in, the, in that green room and yeah. you're dealing with people that literally were on Carson or, you know, have been on um, Letterman or any of those, you know, they've been around forever then sometimes it's more beneficial to keep your mouth shut and not really have a lot of opinions and just hear what it is people are saying because even if your experience will be completely different or you don't see things that way, sometimes it's just good to listen. That's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, no. It's, yeah, yeah, you're you're the first guest where I feel like I'm learning a lot. And like it's, yeah, so I'm. it's a very good quality time for me to uh, be the one, not because I, you know, in Austin... It's rare. It's not that rare, but like for an, an actual comic that's been doing it for as long as you, to sit down with somebody that's completely, uh, you know, not even close to the same green room. Like I, I couldn't, you know. So it's like it's nice for once to feel a little bit nervous. Yeah, no, that's cool. But, like, also, I saw you on Banana Phone, which is basically a heckle show. And I was, you know, um, intrigued by what you do. And I also, like, had respect for the fact that you just put yourself out there. Because for anybody that's not familiar with Banana Phone, that's basically a full-on heckle mic. And not only will the host and the two guests judges i guess you could call them or just Mm -hmm. guests but there's three people that have microphones typically a minimum of three people that have microphones outside of the comic that's on stage and the comic that's on stage is basically subjecting themselves to that three-person firing squad as as well as the entire room and it's just people just shouting random stuff and some of it's about your appearance some of it's about your set some of it's about what they presume your lifestyle is is and watching you go up and do that was interesting to me, and I had respect for that. So I didn't really get to see your act, because what I got to see was right. what you were doing on Banana Phone, which, that kind of situation, you can't really do an act, because you have people just shouting stuff out. And so yeah. that's why I originally was cool to talk to you and stuff like that, because you obviously are willing to put yourself out there and try to learn something from something that maybe some people would see as not being a beneficial exercise at all. They're pussies. Yeah, there's some people that don't do it. They're like, ooh. Uh, my, I actually brought my younger brother to that fucking mic a, a few months ago. He was in town. He's not a comic, uh-huh. but he was with me. So they knew that I had a brother with me. And he looks kind of, you know, it's funny. He's even, just, you know, it was funny to be like, oh, your brother's here. So he stood. I, so I was like, can you stand up and like, and they goaded him, in, and he, you know, they get a, go up there or something, and he did not want to participate at all. Yeah, but he he is a natural showman, I guess, because he ran on stage, leaped onto the stage, and he got ro- he he did it. He got roasted, and not in a bad way. Yeah, but he's never been on stage before. So I was very like happy for him and proud of him, but he was pissed off. He was like, "I can't believe you call you call attention." He's like, "Sorry, man, that's what happens." <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I respect the people that actually do that, Mike. And a part of the reason because I was one of the judge well, guests. Yep. Um, two weeks ago or whatever and one of the reasons that i did that was because i wanted to hear because you know obviously some of the comics will fire back when they're on stage and say some stuff to you and then sometimes the judges will go at each other a little bit which everything's really good natured which is something i think is important like i very rarely see anything that's truly like hateful or you know it's all just kind of whatever you know it's fun and so I wanted to hear the kinds of things people would say to me, but obviously I'm not going to 
probably do it the other way, you know, as like one of the really? mikers. Well, it depends. I mean, you're you could get away. With, I mean, you have I think the the ability, comedic ability, to get away with quite a bit, just because it's funny to insult people if you're good at it. Well, yeah, I and mean, I was I was fun that way, but I I'm saying I wouldn't probably go on stage. Oh. You know, I would have to be a guest or part of the peanut gallery. I don't I don't okay. have an interest at this point, which I'm sure I've done stuff like that when I was younger cuz I I did everything. I've done Literally yeah. every kind younger. of yeah. yeah. I don't blame you at this point in your career to not want to do a shitty. It's not a shitty open, but it's an open mic. And yeah, I don't blame you at all for not having the interest in that. In yeah, and I was telling yeah. Candace, who's the host, uh, how much I respect her and how I really feel like it just is making her completely bulletproof. Because I think that's the other thing. Yeah, that makes it such a, a like a an equal experience. Is if the host just sat on a pedestal and didn't allow themselves to be roasted, but the fact that she goes out there first and does it by example, by letting everybody just pelt her with whatever thoughts they have, you know, like to me, all yeah. the way around, I just respect that show For sure. or that, that idea. Likewise. Yeah. And then uh, the reason I do it too is because it's perfect practice for Kill Tony, which is a even more high octane version of that kill tony is brutal if you and it's seen by hundreds of thousands of people thankfully i had the wherewithal to only do it when i was about eight years in so i did not i didn't walk away with it feeling bad i felt amazing afterwards because it's a very fun show if how far in were you about eight years when i first yeah eight or nine years yeah yeah when i first got up so I had the not. I was like, "Don't fuck it," because I've been watching it since it came out, like in 2013, and I was a brand new comic. I was like, "I would, I would bomb." Yeah, you know, I don't, you know. So, but I still probably would have done it if I lived in L.A. just because it was something to do. Yeah, yeah, I love Kill Tony, and I love uh, again. I respect all of the comics that go on Kill Tony because of exactly what you said. It kind of is like the world is watching, and especially when it comes to the comedy world. It gets such views. I mean, it's like one of the most popular. I think it's the most popular like, streaming uh, podcast or streaming. It's the closest thing to the Tonight Show. That, yeah, like it's your shot to do not even to do a minute. And it's like if you could. Yeah, and most people, it's like so much pressure is on. But, uh, oh, yeah, and I get that because I've been a guest on Kill Tony. Nice. And That's when right. you're a guest, you even feel that pressure, you know, because the, there have been, and I'm not going to throw anybody in the bus, but there have been guests that have bombed in what they were supposed to That's do true. on that show. That's and so, true. like, you know, you you think about that as a comic, too, where you're sort of like, all right, I'm going to be kind of sparing in what I do here because I'm not. But then also, I don't really worry that about that as much just you because you kill is that i haven't seen your episode as a guest but you would obviously if you're confident and you would kill yeah and i don't like i'm not that person because i don't have that insecurity i don't feel like i have to say a million right. things yeah. i just am more of a you know like if i know that i'm gonna kill something it's like i'll say this you you're know right, this will be most right. guests are quiet like even ron white is like very quiet he's nice he's like, yeah he's like, and you pick your moments, cause and but then there's people that are the opposite, like uh, Ian Fidance, who was also on the episode with me. He's oh, more yeah. of an extroverted personality, and he really goes for it. He'll throw a million things out there. Most of them are gold, so I love that too. Like I said, it's, for me, it's not really about like a right and a wrong. It's like finding your rhythm and actually joining the dance at that. Yeah. Does it pay? If you're again, the first that just popped into my head. I don't know. Don't, does it? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't pay. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Jew. I, I have very anything that's in show business. I always have to ask the inner workings or the behind the curtain. But I don't care that much. Not a big deal. Who cares? Yeah. Well, you a know, question. Uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, whatever. And I I did secret show that doesn't pay, but I was honored to be on it. Okay. Yeah. Just another thing. Also, you have to remember different people have different things and you just have to decide if that's good for you or not. Because what you have to remember is on different... Okay, like Russell Peters will get a different door deal than an average weekend headliner at a club. And so also, not only will some people get paid and some people not get paid. So like with me, the reason that I don't answer those questions ever is because 
what I end up getting from something and what somebody else ends up getting for something isn't the same. And the way that I, because, you know, some people would say, well, you should always say because then other people can figure out how they're going to negotiate. And my my thing is, as long as I'm happy with what I got, then I'm not worried about that. So later on when I hear, but like, and then sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes I'll realize that, you know, I did a particular thing. And this is more on the road than here with local because with me and local, I've got to say everybody here, but also I've known everybody forever since LA days, you know, so like Tony Hinchcliffe, I've known him since he first started, you know, he started shortly after me, but like we've known each other for 15 years now, me and Tony, since he first got to LA, we've known each other. He's a door guy. Yeah. yeah. He was, uh, yeah, he was in the, what's it called? He was technically in the booth. Um, back when I remember Tony, like for, but you know, I like me and Tony and he'll tell you this, we've known each other forever. And you know, like me and Brian Moses, who was here for roast battle last night, the original host of the original roast battle. Um, he was here last night and that's why I was judging roast battle here at Gotham or not Gotham, sorry, Vulcan. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking New York. Uh, <laughs> that's fun. That's a fun gig. Hosting yeah. roast battle. So I'm judging roast battle, uh, uh, Vulcan. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that was because I've known Brian Moses forever. Red band. I've known red band since I was in. So, you know, like these guys are always super cool with me and like the way things work between us is different than maybe some other people. And so that's something that people just have to ex accept in certain places where, you know, like some people are thinking of it more as like an opportunity to get more leverage in this scene. You know, like when people think about the secret show, a lot of the newer comics or the comics that have done kill Tony are like, okay, I got invited to the secret show. That means more people on the scene are going to see me and then I'll possibly get booked on more stuff. And so that's the way a lot of people think of it. And then some of us that have been in it for a long time will think like, yeah, it's a, you know, uh, it's a great show and Vulcan's a great space and you're going to be performing with really great comics. Yeah. But at the same time, it's more stage time. It's just, you know, a spot you do. Mm -hmm. So like that affects things too, you know, and so... It's kind of all over the place with stand-up, and you just have to, like I said, be either happy and agree to do something because it benefits what it is you're trying to do, or just pass on it and wait for something to come along that like maybe works more for you. Right. Some things you just do for the credit, others you do for the money. Yeah. And Secret Show obviously is for the credit, if it's me, if it's someone like me. Um, I actually got to judge uh, Rose Battle in Chicago just earlier just last month or something and it that pays yeah and that was very fun yeah i was honored to do it so it was, it was a fun gig and i but you have to be confident that's the closest thing I, i've done that's like you know being on the panel of kill time is like yeah you gotta fucking lean into what you're saying and it will also they make you do a set at the beginning too which was i don't know if they do that here yeah we did well we did the set um i I don't know if I did a set. I don't, I don't okay. think I did a set before. Okay. What's it called? Uh, but last night, I did a set before the one at um, okay. Vulcan. That's good because then the audience gets to know you and it helps you when you're on the panel. If you're just some rando that they don't know, it's like you just pop in. No. If you kill on the set, it makes it better for the panel. Yeah, and it was great. They were super fun. But Brian Moses admits that he inadvertently set me up for failure because he gave me this really great intro and it was like he didn't mention any kind of credits or anything like that he was just like this next comedian is one of the top 10 working comedians out today he's an absolute legend and i love watching him but the audience is getting this expectation as he's saying this and like as a comic in your head you do get a bit like all right well now i gotta live up to this uh, but Shit. if you're like me then there's also a part of you that's like you know well i guess i'm just gonna go out there and make him a liar you know what i mean and so you just go out there and do whatever you do and then like uh, you, you know i'm i'm not too hard about hard on myself about stand-up at all but uh at the same time i don't put too much pressure on myself but i, I absolutely killed it for those people they loved me okay. and so yeah, then it was, then from there, it's like just judging and you've already won them over, so it's good. Vulcan's a real room. It's a real club. So people that go there, they ain't there to not laugh. Yeah, you know? Vulcan is great. And that's the other thing. In, like, in general, most comedy clubs are like, are like that. They're, 
You're not going to get the people to just sit in there. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing. Like, when we talk about perspective, you know, like... Sorry, I just... You can cut that out. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing with um, Vulcan is, like, the way different people look at that is different ways, too. Like, I love that room. It's absolutely great. But I have done it a lot since I've been here. You know, I've been here for two months, and I've done it a lot. Where a lot of the newer comics are trying to work their way up to even being at Vulcan. You know, they don't get mm -hmm. booked regularly mm -hmm. on the uh, at Vulcan. And so that's, again, where people have to look more um, at what where they're at and and how that you know will either help them benefit them not benefit them whatever it is you know well just doing the club yeah and also like you know people will have different levels of nerves because oh, of that yeah. and especially visitors you know when people are visiting because vulcan has been all over everything which i would credit a lot of tony rogan you know comics like that um, for really helping build its name as far as in the comedy world. And so when people come here from other cities, they do think of Vulcan as like one of the clubs to actually be. Like Creek in the Cave is also a sim similar vibe, vibe, but that's more from the New York because for the, for a lot of people, we always heard Creek on the, uh, Creek in the Cave on podcasts and stuff like that from New York. So then when it came here, it still had that legendary type of, you know, Oh yeah, idea for a lot of people. Yeah, oh, so. yeah, even more than ever. It's when I was in New York, I, I looked at it as like a place where it was open to lower ring comics or whatever you want to say. Now it's like a pretty, it's gone up in value, I guess, since moving here. I don't know, just the way I see it. Yeah, well, I've always so heard about it. You look at the comics like that ended up coming out of that. You're right. It was it an was, alt room or something, right? It was considered an alt room. Well, it was. It just seemed to be more open to like people like. Uh, Big J and Louis J. Gomez and uh, like look at some of the people that talk about and do like Skankfest, which is somewhat connected to the Creek in the Cave and like now it is yeah I don't know how far back they okay I actually do remember they had a podcast there with Milo on and that was a yeah big and controversy. that was kind of yeah I really that's right yeah so yeah that was I enjoyed that podcast by the way and uh, Ari Shafir then had Milo on his and then I had Milo on mine in a couple in 2019 that's one of my biggest credits did you have my lord he's a pleasant gentleman he's a gentleman oh yeah uh, well i had assumed yeah but i also felt like milo really messed up because i used to be <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily use the word fan but i definitely was paying attention to milo stuff and i really respected uh his speaking and the way that he's able to retain statistics and facts you know, so there there was, like, Milo is a great speaker, and I think the only place that he really messed up, even in what got him canceled, was that he apologized rather than just explained. Oh, uh, yeah. I think the I apology was I can't recall his, his, uh, him ever apologizing, but that he, yeah, if he did, so. Yeah, well, I was very disappointed when he apologized, and I knew that was the beginning of the end, because now the people that had oh. your back because you're unapologetic, you've lost them. And those were the people that really supported him, were the ones that liked that he was unapologetic. And then the people that hated you got what they wanted out of you, which was the apology, so they felt like they could raise their arms in victory. And that kind of leaves you without a country at that point. Well, I guess he's a pi I mean, he's one of the earliest... He's a pioneer, and now we, we've learned from that. We've learned now, if you're kind of somebody on the dissident side of things... Yeah, you never fucking apologize to the fucking mob. Now we know that, but he's one of the early guys. What, and then Gavin McInnes is. I think he should have known that then, though. No, what now? I think he should have known that then. I think he should have yeah, known. He, I didn't know he apologized. What did he apologize for? He apologized for when they tried to cancel him because they said that he was promoting. Okay. Uh, yeah, which which I won't. The only reason that, that I'm I've not, heard of. Yeah, I don't know. What he, okay, okay. Yeah, and so, but I like I've talked about this before. I didn't see what he was saying as him promoting anything. I think a lot of times when people are yeah, victims of a particular kind of abuse, I think that at different points those people will try to find kind of a power in that. And that's more what yeah. he was expressing. Ah. And I think a lot of times, even though you wouldn't think as, of Milo as your traditional victim, if that did happen to him, then he was, in fact, a victim. And so that's very common. So to me, 
for him to maybe try to... Because the other thing that people forget is that people that have been through certain types of trauma, especially sexual types of trauma, will often not will often learn to discuss it with levity because otherwise you would go crazy if you continue to look at it as a true victimization you know so i think it's also kind of a healthy part of healing to be able to joke about something and i think he made the mistake of thinking that he could joke about that as being a person that's lived that experience to people that haven't lived that experience and then there's the people yeah. that hated him and I think had he been a different personality and a different person I think more people would have been sympathetic to that and actually been able to walk through that thinking like I did because for me I would do that for absolutely anybody that was truly a victim of any kind of real trauma like that where I'd be like okay well why would they say that and then try to walk mm -hmm. it through right because I didn't look at it as like him promoting or even trying to justify. I saw it more as, like I said, somebody trying to find power in what mm -hmm. should be a powerless situation. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I I don't know what the fuck. But what do I know? I'm just a dummy that but dropped out after the ninth grade. Really? Yeah. <laughs> right. But what you just said is fucking. I mean, like, yeah. If if you're not allowed to joke about the thing you went through then who is like people get offended even if you're the one who went through the fucking thing they they didn't you know obviously but in my closest thing that i could think of in my purview or not me particular not me directly but my grandparents were both holocaust survivors mm -hmm. and they joked about it yeah i got news for people so if they if i i don't know so i'm the closest thing to you know like i'm pretty close to that victim side of things if i had to pick something that was a not that i give a fuck um but i also make holocaust jokes like, i don't make it just holocaust jokes i make jew jokes mm -hmm. like very red-pilled type jokes and that's where i gotta take uh advice from people like Milo. it's like i'm never i'm definitely not gonna apologize for them because nobody's asking me to right now but that will definitely come to light it's like if i ever do get successful people will definitely be like damn he said a lot of really like fucked up things but also i think the tides might change on that i think the people it's one of my th theories is that actually maybe the woke thing will die down maybe like 4chan people are uh, ahead of their time and maybe we actually will start to embrace like racial, uh, whatever you call it, racial realism. Well, I think what's happening, uh, like if you look at a lot of the people that are Gen Z, is that people are starting to find a little bit more of a balance. Like you can joke about things and take them seriously at the same time. Like in a lot of cases with things like gender or transgender to be specific you can joke about that and at the same time respect transgender people just like you can do a black joke and still not hate black people you can do a joke about mexicans latinos you know whichever way you want to categorize or categorize it whether you want to go more specific more specific or more general but then also i think people I, or I should say, I hope people learn to be a little more balanced also in the way they dole out forgiveness and empathy. Because you'll notice that depending on what side a person is on politically or people are on politically, the, the general public will decide like whether or not that person deserves forgiveness or empathy. I think like a good example of that would be like um, there are alleged I'm, i'll be careful in my wording on this but alleged accusers as far as sexual assault and rape go for donald trump there are also sexual assault or alleged sexual assault and rape accusers for bill clinton well the ones that have accused bill clinton are vilified by the left right even though we're supposed to be believe all women and the ones that have accused donald trump for the left those are heroes and people that need to be taken seriously. And no matter how like sincere or insincere either side's arguments are, depending on which side you're on, that's who you give your sympathy to. And it's like, really, can't you be a little bit more balanced in that and be like, some people on both sides are full of shit. Like when it comes to things like that, you know, if you look at a lot of accusations, even they take the political side out of it. Like a lot of times when you 
notice that people are accusing a person of a particular thing, even if it's not sexual, just whatever it is. A bunch of people come out with the woodwork, come out of the woodwork, sometimes in cases where you look at it and you're like, you weren't even a victim of anything but your own bad decision. Like that was you making a bad, say, business decision. Really? Okay. What you about, know what I mean? What about Harvey Weinstein? Do you blame, do you, do you think it was all, do you think it was something to say about like, well, if you want to make it in Hollywood, there is a way to get there. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard Charlize saying, Theron say yeah. shit, and she was in everything. Right. You know, why hasn't she said anything? You think the most beautiful one, that's the one Harvey Weinstein was like, I won't touch that one? Which maybe it was, but maybe at the same time, there's some that were like, okay, this is just what I have to do, and I accept this, and I'm never going to complain about it, and that's just a part of the game that I was playing. And then there's also some that really hadn't realized what they were getting into. I think it's the entire spectrum on that. And I say that as a person that's done, like, because a lot of times when I say stuff like this, people think I'm not being sympathetic, empathetic, or whatever it is I'm supposed to be in their view. But, like, for me, I'm a person that has a history in sex work, so I understand the spectrum on a lot of things. Like, there's cases where I've been completely sexually harassed and was completely wrong and there's cases where me and somebody have worked out a price and I didn't give a fuck what happened afterwards you know and I've, I've had it all happen and so um, for me when like say a blogger type you know is like well this is disgusting and it's whatever else and it's like mm, also there's certain people that were willing to play that game and so for a person like Harvey Weinstein I think and I'm making no excuses for him but I think the line also gets very blurred with them, too, where they think that they have a strategy that kind of works, and then they get told no, and rather than like a decent human being, they fall back. They now feel entitled because X, Y, and Z did allow them to do it, and then that's where you have the situations which were truly sexual assault. And yes, I do think that Harvey Weinstein did a lot of things. That yeah, he's were, the extreme example. There's exactly. many lesser examples of just like, okay, if you fuck this famous guy, it'll help you get somewhere in the business. Or yeah, something. or like James Franco. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, like there was that woman that she admitted that she was dating him, and then she said that there was a point where when they were dating, that he wanted to have sex, she didn't, and then they were in some, like, private circumstance or whatever, and then he pulled out his penis, which I'm sure there's other details or whatever, but, like, that's the gist of it. And it's like, I've done that with people I've dated before. Yeah, because it's not that bad. yeah Seth Rogen, he's being a bit, I refuse to work with him. It's like, whatever. Seems like a good guy. No, I don't know. I don't fucking know. But, like... But certain times, it's like, you know, was that really, like, us? like, is that... You sexually harassing somebody, or is that sometimes what people do with? Because okay, it's power. Yeah, back well, in the eighties, there used to be a joke hmm. where, um, you know, it was all the time you'd hear, especially like comedians of color, female comedians of color, would do this joke about um, how you tell your man no to sex, and he says, "Ah, oh, come on, let me just put in the head." And then, like, a lot of times the joke would be, like, I done had three babies from just the head. But that is, like, at the time, it was normal for, I guess you could call it coercion to happen, but nobody saw it as a sexual assault. So as times change and as people <laughs> maybe evolve, and then some people also, are just stay like that. That's just the black community or kind of, that's just the joke that comes from the black community where they're equal. There's no, there's not a big power dynamic between you know it's just black people having sex but it's if not, he's extremely powerful to get angry as like, okay you fucked me and you're not famous if you're usher but that's where i think people fuck up is because like it's not my fault if you don't know your own value if he's extremely powerful and you're extremely beautiful in my opinion okay. that levels a lot of things out and if you don't know how to leverage your beauty and you think his money outweighs your beauty then maybe you're fucking around in a game you really shouldn't be in anyway you know maybe at the same time as they say that powerful men shouldn't go after i guess women where the power but that would make no sense because so many people are comfortable in that world yeah that's an even it's kind of a fair ch exchange it's just obviously more recently we're going after men are starting to get the f the negative side of it but also women get the negative side of it because they get called names they, there's a stigma to obviously doing that so i get it if i was a woman 
and I felt like I wanted to get places in comedy or something like that, I would feel the, like, do I want to be slimy? Because I'm going to get, you're going to get fucking hammered for it. So there's this, it's, it's you know, maybe men deserve a little bit of the come, comeuppance, but not, you know, not Johnny Depp, not all of them. Yeah, well, again, you know, decide what you're comfortable and whether or not that's worth it to you. It's kind of like the same thing I said when it comes to working at clubs and stuff like that. You want to feel like you got there from being talented. Oh, well, definitely. That's why, like, with me, when I got sexually harassed, it really was a situation of sexual harassment. And it happened in the stand-up world. And what happened was, when I stopped doing sex work... I did not at all want to carry that over into the stand-up world. So I didn't ever, even when I was younger, you know, because obviously I was much younger when I started, I didn't at all want to be fucking people for spots or hooking up with people for spots. And those opportunities were there because anytime that, you know, you're around anybody that could be sexually attracted to you, then you have a chance to possibly use that as some sort of leverage. And so I never wanted that to be the same. So I definitely do understand where that like spills over and it gets put on you and it's not your fault. But I think that, you know, with all those things, there are conversations to be had that are maybe a little less about the full stop and the like, let's talk about that and let's actually see where people are and what different situations are and the specifics of different situations rather than just putting a blanket on everything and saying, this is sexual harassment, this is sexual assault, this is... Sometimes it's like, okay, let's see if there's any kind of nuance in any of what anybody's saying. And sometimes, I hate to admit or say it, but sometimes it is people just wanting attention. Sometimes people just see another person is getting attention because they made a particular claim and somebody's like, well, I had some kind of situation with that person and maybe I'll just say that this was what happened to me too. But it's a different situation. If you go into the details of it, you're like, and then that muddies it for the person that's the actual victim because it's like you actually didn't like, you know, Chris D'Elia is a good, a good uh, yeah, example of that. I was wondering what you thought about him, but it's just, we could wrap, we're, we just hit an hour, so we could wrap it up whenever you want. Yeah, I'm cool whenever. Um, But I don't know. Yeah, you could talk about Chris D'Elia if you want, but also... What do you think of like the double standard of like a woman if a woman uh, manipulates a man for sex? Uh, I'm not gonna say that has happened to me outright because I it was my choice, mm-hmm. but I have felt slightly in that position of like okay she just wants to, but I'm afraid to say no because she might hurt me. That's how big of a pussy I am, or at least how I w- used to be before I kind of got a little bit better at saying no to people. I don't know. I, I'm very. Did vo- you think hurt you physically or hurt you uh, oh, career wise yeah. or what? No, nothing bad happened. I was just worried that if I don't, it. And this is not just me. This is not just something that has happened to me because it it didn't happen to me. I it was consensual. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad happened. But there's other male comedians that this has happened to that it, it did fucking hurt their non-existent career as in whatever. Like somebody took them on the road, you know, something happened and he regretted it. And yeah. He blogged about it. And then she fucking, she's still going. I don't know. It's just, that's a very controversial thing because also it's very close to home because I know the people that I'm referring to. Like I, it's a very like Chicago legend thing. Yeah, and I don't want to throw people under the bus because I don't have a dog in the fight. It's just an interesting thing that came. Well, up no, we had that happen in L.A. too when the whole Me Too happened. There were a, like a fair amount of male comics that had been harassed by this female booker, um, yeah. small time, small small time club owner. Um, but like people had brought that up and the women that were the hardest about the me too, were like, this isn't about you. This is about us. And I was on the side of, well, isn't being a victim being a victim. And if you're pointing out like a problem, even though, yeah, you may feel like it might be beneficial for you to talk about the specific male on female, isn't there more strength in numbers and acknowledging that there's a problem across the board, but right now we're concentrating on this, doesn't that give you kind of more power in the situation and prove your point even more when you're saying it doesn't just happen this way, it happens that way too. This is a problem we have all the way through. And then you add in the LGBT angle of it and you're like, oh, so it's happening there too. So maybe this is a problem, not necessarily just men against women, but then again, if you're thinking about politics, then you want to boil it down to only men do it to women or 
or only women do it to men because that's what serves your needs as far as the political side goes. I remove gender from it and all in orientation from it. Obviously. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? It's, it's, of course. It's smarter could happen to happen to anybody and anybody could perpetrate. Yeah, it's smarter to, yeah, in my opinion. Yes. But you can't tell people that when they have an agenda. Because some of these people, even though they, if you would ask them, they would say they have no agenda. But if you just look at it objectively, you'd be like, you have an agenda. And that's just what it is. So right. accept that and talk to me from that perspective instead of trying to make it seem like you're completely unbiased and almost like you don't have a dog in the fight. And it's like, well, I don't really believe what you're saying. You know, when people talk to me that way. And just, I said, I don't believe what you're saying, but it's not, I'm not okay. talking to you. <laughs> of course. Well, with that said, my agenda is to be a big time producer like Harvey Weinstein. Okay. So, so I want, so I'm going to have to learn how to not... He's a role, not him, but he's, you know, I have role models like him, and uh, he also made some good movies, so it takes talent to be him, and I want that. I want to have a big production company, and so my thing that I learned from this conversation is try not to be evil. We'll see how that pans out. But anyway, this has been a great fucking episode, I think. This is episode 64, and my guess you could, if you have anything you want to plug before we... Everybody follow me on YouTube. That, okay. I would say, is my favorite platform right now. My name is Ty Rivera. It's spelled T-H-A-I-R-I-V-E-R-A, -E which is also the same as my channel. So just search Ty Rivera and you will find me. Fuck yeah. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me.